what I want to talk about is who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. And one other thing before I go too much farther, is there anybody here that doesn't know the difference between one house and two house? Just so you know, this is a two house congregation. One house congregations are typically run by ethnic <clears throat> Jews, Jews that have come out of Judaism, grew up in Judaism and have found the Messiah and have started messianic congregations. So my daughter, for example, when she was in Wichita, went to a one-house congregation. The rabbi there was the son of a rabbi, grew up as a rabbi, and came to Yeshua, and then started a messianic congregation. He's very much one house. Same thing with the congregation my son goes to. One-house congregations are, broadly speaking, of the opinion that Judah is all there is. Everybody else is pretty much lost. Don't know where they are, can't find them, so we're God's chosen people. And oh, by the way, we have members of all 12 tribes within us. Because you remember when the northern and southern kingdoms split, there were a bunch of people in the northern kingdom who said, we ain't doing any golden calves, thank you and migrated south. So in fact, people who are in one house congregations tend to think that they're it. Two house congregations are of the opinion that when the northern kingdom was sent into exile, that God never lost track of his people. And hundreds of years after that event, the prophets still talk about the return of Ephraim. So two house congregations are of the opinion that Ephraim is still out there. God is still going to bring Ephraim back. He hasn't lost track of them at all. And that a lot of you people who grew up Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, whatever, no Jewish ethnicity that you know of may in fact be Ephraim. And one of the reasons that you come back here and you get all clouded up and you say, this is home is because it is home, because you are Ephraim. So that's the difference between one and two house congregations. This particular congregation happens to be two house. That's more typical of congregations that are led by people who grew up Gentile. One of the things that may be driving that is the prodigal son. The deal is that ethnic Jews are the older brother who stayed home while the younger brother went out and wasted the father's fortune. So when the younger brother comes back, they sort of look at the younger brother and say, I've been doing this for 5,000 years. I have been taking the slings and arrows of the world for 5,000 years while you guys are off doing something else. So yeah, we do have a special place. And I understand that attitude. I'm not saying that in a harsh way at all. It's very, very human and very natural. But as I say, as I read the scripture, God does not anywhere say that he's lost track of Ephraim. And he does say that he is going to bring him back. So my belief is that those of us here who have no ethnic Jewish background that we know of very well may be Ephraim. And notice I said that very carefully. You don't have to be Ephraim to be here. 
That isn't necessary either. I'm just saying that there are a lot of people that come into this and it's just like, wow, I'm home. I think maybe some of those are Ephraim. So let's talk about Jews, Gentiles, and grafted in. And who is supposed to do what? You have Judah now, what we know as ethnic Jews. You have Ephraim, which is some of us. And you have Gentiles, no Hebrew heritage whatsoever. And we've got all three of those in this body. If you go to a one-house congregation, what the Jews will say, the stuff that we're supposed to do because we're Jews is different than the stuff you're supposed to do as Gentiles. There is some truth to that. It is not entirely bogus. If you go to Paul, he's got two disciples that he works with, Titus and Timothy. Titus is a full-blown ethnic Gentile. No Jewish heritage whatsoever that anybody knows of. Timothy has a Jewish mother. When Paul runs into those two guys, they are both uncircumcised. If you will, I consider Paul to be fairly authoritative. And he treats those two young men differently. So Timothy, in Acts chapter 16, he has circumcised as a young man. He's got a Jewish mother, so he's ethnically Jewish. He didn't grow up Jewish. He didn't get circumcised on the eighth day or any of that stuff. But before Paul starts taking him along on his missionary journey, he has him circumcised because he is Jewish. Titus is in the same situation except Titus is a Gentile. And Paul drags Titus back to Jerusalem and the Council of Jerusalem, and he never has Titus circumcised because Titus is not Hebrew. So there are, in fact, different laws, if you will, for ethnic Hebrews than there are for ethnic Gentiles. Now, the problem, of course, is those of us who don't know. And let's take circumcision for a moment. What is the only thing about circumcision that makes a difference? Passover. And so if you're going to eat the Passover, everybody who eats the Passover has to be circumcised, Hebrew and Gentile alike. And oh, by the way, for those of you who are worried, we don't do the Passover here. What we do is a remembrance because we can't sacrifice the lambs in Jerusalem. That's the real Passover. What we're doing is a memorial of the event. It is not eating the Passover. So if you are a Gentile or a male who is uncircumcised and you get invited to a Passover meal in this congregation, go and enjoy yourself. You do not have to get circumcised first. If, however, the temple gets up and running again, as we expect it will, and you go to Jerusalem for a Passover, you cannot eat that Passover unless you're circumcised. So, yes, there are differences between Jews and Gentiles and what you're expected to do, because some of that stuff is covenant stuff. And the covenant is with Israel. A lot of it that we do is simply... God's instructions for living in this world to maximize your time here. Those are different things. Romans 11, and this is the grafted in chapter. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? 
how he appeals to God against Israel. We've been studying Elijah on Tuesday nights. And Elijah, of course, once he gets run out of town by Jezebel, is speaking against Israel, the northern kingdom in his case. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the need of all. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So what he's saying is I have kept some faithful among Israel. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a, a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So the idea here is he's talking in terms of prophecy. And one of the things that happened to Israel and Judah separately, independent events, is when it got time for them to go into exile, their hearts were hardened. The reason that their hearts were hardened, it, it's just like Pharaoh. They had an opportunity to do what God wanted them to do. He gave them the Torah. He told them what he wanted to do. When they went astray, he was long-suffering. But at some point, he decides, okay, you guys need to go into exile. And exile is therapeutic. In other words, you go into exile to get an excess of whatever it was that sent you into exile. So it's sort of like too many pancakes. You know, if, you, if you're glutton for pancakes, somebody feeds you pancakes and feeds you pancakes, and finally you say, I, have I, don't, want to, I don't want any more pancakes. So when Israel falls into idolatry, they get sent to idol central, Babylon. When Judah goes into baseless hatred among their fellows and they can't get along, they get sent out into baseless hatred, which is what they've been dealing with for the last 2,000 years. But what happens before that is God hardens their heart. Now, they have already made the choice that they're going into exile by their behavior. And when God finally decides the tipping point has been reached, that doesn't mean that the exile is going to happen in the next 20 minutes. It may take another 20 years. But what God does then is hardens their heart because the exile has been decreed and they're gone. And what Paul is saying here is these people's hearts have been hardened and there's a reason that their hearts have been hardened. So what I want to do now is let's go to the reason that their hearts have been hardened. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the reason that their hearts are hardened is so that the Gentiles can come in. Just like their hearts get hardened before they get sent into exile. And so what's happened is they have been hardened. The Gentiles have come in. They have received the Holy Spirit the Gentiles have become part of the kingdom of God, and now in the process of unhardening their hearts, they are being made jealous by the Gentiles, or they should be. Now, part of the problem is the behavior of most Sunday churches doesn't make the Jews jealous at all. 
because they worship this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who eats ham on Easter Sunday. And God bless them, I'm sounding harsh, but I don't mean to. I mean, they're doing what they've been taught and, and, and all that, and they're on, they're on the same team, and, they're, and they're, they're mostly good folks, but they are not making any Jews jealous. Jews regard the Sunday church as a different religion from the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they follow. Just like the Muslims have got all sorts of Torah and all sorts of Christianity within their book, but it's a different religion. So go to your average Episcopalian, Lutheran, Baptist, Mormon church, and there isn't anything in there that would make a Jew jealous. So part of what we are here, part of what the Messianic movement is, is people who do the things that the Torah says to do as best we can outside of Israel. I mean, there's stuff we can't do outside of Israel. But as best we can, we do what the Torah says to do And by that, we should be observable by Jews, and and it's happened to many of us. Why are you guys doing that stuff? That isn't for you. Well, yeah, it is. Not all of it, most of it. And what that does is does what Paul says we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be behaving in a way that makes them jealous. There are things that Israel is called to do. They are called to be a priesthood. They're called to be in a function that is different than the Gentiles. They just are. And that continues to be forever. That doesn't diminish the relationship of a God-fearing Gentile with God. All right, so I'm in Romans 11.11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words... By their being hardened and by their being cast out, salvation has gone to the Gentiles because Yeshua came first to the Jews, was rejected, then went to the Gentiles. Now, if their trespasses mean riches to the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, they're coming back. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, Gentiles, who are in a Roman synagogue, who have the Holy Spirit, who are born-again, tongue-talking, water-walking Christians. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in this church. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In other words, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, to make my fellow Jews jealous. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And again, you're talking there, Jeremiah 38, the dry bones. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. What is the olive tree? Israel. Back to verse 17. Now if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. And oh, by the way, is the wild olive shoot grafted in going to produce cultivated olives? 
No, it's going to produce the same kind of olives it produced before, but it's now nourished by the root. Those of you who have been to Israel know there's a thousand varieties of olives there. Wonderful. And you can graft different ones in and you get different olives, even though they're coming out of the same root. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, those that are broken off, or those that you are among. And, and it could be either one, because you have wild branches among the cultivated branches, because only some were broken off. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You know, by the way, for Calvinists, that ought to be a wake-up call. 22. Note then the kindness and severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their belief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So the root is the key here. The branches are very different. And the branches that are native Israelite branches bear a different fruit than the branches that were wild olives even though they are both grafted into the same root. What I will suggest is the Jews who have a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what I would call devout Jews, whether they're wearing black hats or some other color hat, there are lots and lots of Jews that have a worship relationship with God. If you can demonstrate that you also have a worship relationship with the same God, I will suggest that that will go a long way to make them jealous. And the problem with the Christian Sunday church is it isn't obvious to those Jews that we are worshiping the same God. And one of the things about the Messianic church is neither the Christians nor the Jews like us. One of the things we're studying at, on Tuesday night is Elijah and Elisha. And one of the things that is fairly obvious about those two guys is they do not operate on faith as we understand faith. For example, when Elisha is in a town that suddenly gets surrounded by a Syrian army and his servant is panicking. Elisha says, God, open the kid's eyes so he can see what's really going on. And the eyes get open and all of a sudden he sees chariots of fire and horsemen all around. Elijah can see that stuff. He doesn't say open my eyes, he says open this kid's eyes so he'll calm down. It's obvious that Elisha and Elijah don't operate on faith the way we do, they operate on sight. And the other thing that's obvious about it is they are both really grumpy guys. And I will suggest that carrying that kind of a burden in this world is like walking around with shoes too tight. It is really uncomfortable. So we all say we want all of this, but the record of the guys in Scripture that have it is it's a tremendous, tremendous burden. And the thing about Israel we all say we want to be Israel, and maybe we do. But the thing that comes with that is 
gas chambers, and all sorts of stuff. I personally, I don't know whether I'm ethnically Jewish or not. I just don't know, at least not definitively. But quite frankly, I would be just as happy not to have some of the stuff that goes with being Jewish. Now, does that make me love God any less? I don't think so. But that does perhaps give me a different function. Mm-hmm.